podcast one production. In the middle of the night, an 83-year-old woman received a phone call. Good evening, ma'am. I'm Officer Kropke of the San Francisco Police Department. I'm afraid I have to tell you that we have your grandson in custody. What? Why? Your grandson, Matthew, right? Well, a few hours ago, your grandson hit a police officer with his automobile. We believe he was texting while driving. Didn't even see the officer. Is my grandson okay? He's doing better than the officer, ma'am, who's in the hospital getting treated. I'm afraid we've had to arrest your grandson and we'll be holding him in jail until he makes bail. $4,000. Oh, my. That's such a lot of money. Can I speak to my grandson? Uh, I shouldn't let him talk to you. He's already had his call. But maybe he can tell you what happened. Thank you. Grandma, I'm sorry. I only looked down for a moment and this policeman, he walked out into the street to direct traffic and I hit him. I'm sorry, Grandma, please. Please, can you help me out? Matthew, is that you? You sound different. Please, Grandma. I don't want to go to jail. Hello. I'm Don Tricksicky, your grandson's court-appointed lawyer. I'm afraid Matthew has gotten himself into a lot of trouble. We need $4,000 from you tonight or he goes to jail. Uh, I don't know. He sounds strange. Matthew is in custody, Mum. He's more than a little bit frightened right now. But you can get him out of this. Uh, It doesn't feel right. No. No, it doesn't feel right. I'm not going to spend my time arguing with you. I don't need this case. I have ten others. With that, the caller hung up. A few minutes later, the phone rang again. And this time, the 83-year-old woman didn't answer. You've just heard a reenactment of an incident that happened at the start of 2018, and it's something we'll be hearing a lot more of over the next billion seconds. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversation with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. We kick off series two in conversation with web pioneer John Alsop, talking about what it means to be so well-known by so many so easily that identity and reality start to become very slippery indeed. Lies and truth on this series of The Next Billion Seconds. The suspicions of that 83-year-old grandmother, the star of our little radio play, saved her from a fraud that would have cost her $4,000. Why? Mostly because when she spoke to her grandson, his voice didn't sound right. But what if it had... What if they'd gotten a voice actor who could mimic her grandson's voice precisely or had used a computer program to synthesize his voice? Well, is that even possible? Yeah, yeah, it is. Two years ago, Adobe, and they're the folks who make most of the creative software that you'll find on a computer, they showed off a new tool. They called it Voco. Voco takes a pre-recording of an individual, generally minutes and minutes and minutes of pre-recording, analyzes that recording, and from that analysis, it can synthesize 
any other phrase in the speaker's natural voice. Now, 30 years ago, Adobe gave the world Photoshop, and all of a sudden, we could never trust a photograph again. Now, it seems that the same fate is going to befall our ears. If that's true, how can we tell where the truth lies? To help us answer that question, a question framing this whole series of the next billion seconds, we're joined by frequent guest John Alsop. John, welcome back. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be back. So we live in a time now where the technologies of simulation have gotten so good, and it could be as simple as faking a website so that someone puts in their name and their password so that you can steal their banking details, or it can be a video of Obama, or a tape from Russia, maybe with the current president of the United States doing something that it's claimed he's done. How can we know anymore whether anything anyone is showing us to excite us or to shock us or to change our minds? How can we trust any of that anymore? Well, this is a problem that's actually uh, technology is created for us for a very long time. There's an extremely famous uh, photograph of fairies at the end of a garden that was taken about 100 years ago uh, using the effects of photography and then dual exposure, double exposure, that many, many people around the world were led to believe fairies were real and existed. Because photographs don't lie. Right. And especially when it's an emerging and new technology that we associate with truth-telling as opposed to more traditional methods of mimesis, you know, sketching and drawing and painting. So on one level, this is not a new problem. And then in a completely different way, in a sense, is it a problem at all? And the reason I raise that is, so there's a very famous quote of Donald Trump that pretty much everyone believes, where he apparently about 20-odd years ago in, in a, an interview said, you know, if I ever ran for politics, I would run as a Republican because they have the dumbest voters, in the, right? Everyone out there listening right now probably, yeah, well, I've heard that. And I, have you ever had pause to consider whether that was true? It's not true. It's been fact-checked a thousand times. You go to Snopes, you go elsewhere. And yet, almost everyone believes that he did say that. It could be because it conforms to, well, certainly everyone of a certain kind of, of, of voter, right? So, so the, one of the problems here is, is literally we don't need much, if anything, to really convince us of the things we already believe. So this is interesting, and this comes to confirmation bias, and we'll talk about that in a second. But there was an article that I literally read this morning from The Atlantic, which talked about people on Twitter sharing, so retweeting something. And it turns out that about 70% of the time, people will retweet something that's not true, but is in agreement with what they believe or proves their point. It seems like there's a much stronger desire to share the things that reinforce what we believe than there is a desire to clear the air with truth. And is that kind of the reason we found ourselves backed into this corner? Look, I, I guess that, that that's a convincing hypothesis. Mm. And, and, does that sp- <laughs> and does that just mean it's con- confirming right. what we believe? Well, there's that too, isn't it? And that's the slippery slope we're now on. Um, you know, is it something evolutionary about us that we have evolved to, to find in-groups and to confirm our biases because that helped us survive before we created well, towns and city and civilization. So uh, we, we know this. hacking we, us? We know that the tribal thing is you believe a certain set of things, you have a certain flag, you have a certain war chant, and I have a certain set of beliefs and a certain tribal god and a certain war chant. And we do know that these are the ways that we can identify the in-group and the out-group. And, and so maybe we're seeing that now being played out at a global scale, but also now played out inside of technologies such as social media that tend to amplify those differences in us. And I guess related to that is that 
traditionally we had geographical bounds. So you go back more than about 150 years ago where, you know, the faster we could travel across the world was by boat. Right. So before the telegraph. Right, before, well, before the telegraph, or even before any sort of mass, tra- or even fast transportation. Mm. News travelled slowly, and as a consequence, we could in- the, the, the networks we built, for the most part, were in the order of 150 people, the famous Dunbar uh, number. And, and so as a consequence, the impact of, of the size and scale of, of groups and then the impact on one another is that they were very geographically, you know, closely located. We didn't start having massive global wars or even like the American Civil War, I guess, the first industrial war. Why was that? Because two enormous tribes could move by railway. Railway, right. They could send information, uh, you know, like... By telegraph. Uh, by telegraph and, 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 you know, rapid transportation of newspapers and, and other information. So it's very interesting to see that we see the rise of global scale warfare, like mass scale warfare, uh, it closely aligned with the rise of mass communication and, and rapid transport. And what that's really doing is breaking down the geographical nature of tribality uh, or more the impact of, of being tribal. What we're seeing is a different effect now, which is our tribes are geographically dispersed across the globe, mm. right? Whether they're in Botswana or New York State or wherever it happen to be, we can identify and create tribes around shared beliefs independent of geography. And, you know, one of the original conferences that I, I spoke at that really talked about this was the Conference for Disinfo, which was a big publication, early internet age, that talked about conspiracy theories, right? And it was a lot of fun because it was back when you could sort of, you know, it was the X-Files era. You could have a giggle about it. Now, of course, conspiracy theories have sort of become the dominant thing. But back then, the tagline for coming to the conference was find the others, Right. Right. Because you had to go to find the others. It was the opportunity to meet face-to-face all of the people who shared the same cranky, crazy beliefs that you did. And now what we're seeing is that in the age of social media, because that's essentially, this is 2000, so it's before social media as we think of it today. Yes, the web exists. Before we'd really worked out how to connect. Um, that in fact there wasn't a lot of that, you know, that people had to get together into a single place, whether that be a science fiction convention, which were famous for this, or a professional association, or a guild, or a fraternity, you know, you'd have all of these things, and then all of a sudden what's happened is in the last 10 years we've broken through into something else. Yeah, and and I guess, so now what we have is the global scale impact of the tribal nature of humans. And the trouble in the nature of humans is is pretty irrational, right? Like, well, we want to believe what we want to believe, and we don't want to believe what you believe, right? So, you know, and, and because that establishes as being different from you, and for some reason, this seems to be very important to humans. And I, and I guess it comes back to something that I think is probably evolutionary in our nature: is there's something about distinguishing ourselves from others, but also relating to another set of people is really important. That sense of identity through group seems to be important. So uh, before we start attributing things to biology, and I want to be careful because that... Yeah, that be, psychology is a slippery slope. That can be dangerous. But let's talk about confirmation bias. Right? So confirmation bias is something we can identify. And it's been well identified in psychology for, I don't know, probably 60 or 70 years, which is that when you believe a certain set of things about the world, your passage through the world and the things that you pay attention to in that world are in fact the things that will tend to confirm the things that you believe and you tend to ignore or filter out the things that disagree that cause cognitive dissonances. Yeah, so we term. get this kind of feedback loop where we self-reinforce what we already believe. And so that would just in itself, 
taking evolution out of it, that would tend to mean that people who share your beliefs would tend to be drawn closer because you would all be very interested in reinforcing the things. You're hearing the things that other people are saying because they're tending to reinforce the things you believe. But the other tribe who's saying things that you don't believe in, you're tending to filter that out. Well, those that tends to be unpleasant, right? Disagreement, uh, for, the, for the most part, tends to be un- unpleasant. You haven't ever been on Twitter, be, have you? Please, well, <laughs> there's, the, you know, yeah. but there's also a, a kind of pleasure or whatever yeah. you want to call it in disagreement with people. But I think for the most part, uh, you know, humans... You know, like when they disagree with one another, I think, you know, find that an unpleasant circumstance. We look to try, we strive for our consonants. And so one of those things is to find the people who largely agree with us. And in which case, then we, you know, we don't have to look for that consonance. It's simply there to begin with. Yeah, but you do, I think you would also see because of the way we want to be closer together, that in fact, when there's a group of people and they have some set of agreements about what they believe, that will tend to accelerate because people will, if they're in a tribal group, will, will want to be closer rather than further away because that also represents safety. So again, without invoking evolution, you can just go, look, at this is the way people are in groups, right? We want to be close. And in order to be close, we have to have shared beliefs beliefs because otherwise it's too contentious it's too difficult for us and people break apart and you talked about something called the dunbar number and for our listeners this is robin dunbar who's an anthropologist took a look at the brain sizes of gorillas and chimpanzees and human beings and specifically the size of the forebrain and it's believed that the front part of our brain is where we sort of handle all of our social relationships and he found a precise correlation between the volume in our forebrain so how many cubic uh, how many cc's of, of brain tissue that we have and the number of individuals you'd find within a particular grouping and for gorillas it's around 20 for chimpanzees it's around 35 because they have bigger brains than the gorillas and then for humans it's around 150 and he called that dunbar's number and if you do an inventory in your own self, the number of people who you're carrying around in your head, in other words, the number of people who you could predict whether they would react to a joke or how they'll react to a joke, that's kind of the thing that tells you whether they're in your head or not. And so we we each carry about 150 people around with us. What we see is that when human groupings grow beyond that number, they tend to become two groupings because People are losing track of how other people are going to behave and those moments where there's a grading between two groups of people gets big enough or important enough that these become two drives who probably then go to war with each other. And so, interestingly, I recently heard of a study of, that analysed across a lot of Facebook users the average number of connections right. between people, and it turns out it's about 140. Yeah. And the speculation, firstly, was that that is you know extremely close to Dunbar's number, but also perhaps it will tend over time towards 150 because we've we've increasingly we're always getting new people on those networks, and it takes time to to get out to the war, that number. So, it'd be interesting to see whether that the asymptote of, of that growth would be towards Award 150 or so. And that's not a static, you know, there are people constantly entering and leaving our heads, right? There are people we're going closer to or people who are, are leaving our networks, they're moving away, we're just losing contact. And so, so this is really interesting because we do have a sense for all of those people. But, of course, we've also been living in larger agglomerations, so what we would think of as urban agglomerations, for about 10,000 years. And the first thing that happens in a city is you can't carry everyone around inside of your head. And the interesting thing then about that is it's hypothecated that this is why we start having laws 
All right. So we're leaving the idea of custom. So this is the way we do things because this is the tribe and we have an agreement. This is the right way to do things. And all of a sudden we're entering this world where now we have rules. Because if you can't know someone, you can at least be assured that they're going to abide by a shared set of rules or they're going to pay a penalty for that. Well, there, and, and traditionally, you know, before industrial urban cities and so on, really only the last 150 years or so, we, we use kind of a moral economy or ideas of, 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 there's a wonderful term called rough music. What does that mean? So rough music is a very interesting phenomenon that there are still echoes of mm-hmm. to today. So, you know, when someone's just married and we spray paint their cars and put the cat, that's an example of what's called rough music. The idea of riding the stang or being ridden out of town on a rail, the, you know, which is... Tarred and feathered. Tarred and feathered. These are all evidence or these are all kind of examples. Oh, so of this. the pillory. And the then, pillory, and exactly. And then throwing rotten fruit at someone right. when they're on so, the pillory. The stock. These are all... And then this is this is marvellous work by E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm, and a bunch of kind of historians, you know, British kind of socialist Marxist historians of the early middle 20th century. Um, well, I've lived on, on beyond that, but the work they did was in the middle of the 20th century because there were still echoes of a lot of these practices well into the 20th century, particularly in re- more remote parts of England and Wales, and the Appalachians, it, it transferred to the Appalachians. But now we also have pylon culture, right, online. That that woman who got on a flight to South Africa, right. whose last tweet was something about, hope I don't get AIDS, and was on a flight for 12 hours, and then she walks off this flight, and all of a sudden, 100 million people are hating on her, and she had no idea it was coming. So we actually still have that same behaviour today. Right. So, so it's really interesting, though, that as you say that worked that worked when we had relatively small communities who would mm. police behaviors like the scold mm. i mean even the punch and judy reflects this these kinds of behaviors were uh, kind of patrolled and policed by communities because they were you know villages and towns in the order of that number number yeah. oh yeah and you knew everyone that's right and and you know you, your family's intermarried and, and and so there was this social pressure in order to to ma- maintain order there yeah. weren't police forces like yeah. no, the, the idea of a police force comes from the 19th century absolutely the so, bobby who you know like yeah. you know it was invented in britain but you know there were there were courts that would you know circuit courts which would come and try very very serious crimes uh, things like murder and poaching because that was very important because it was a property crime against against the, and, the landed gentry. And, and of but, course, theft so that you could then be transported to Australia. Right. Uh, but, which is almost an industrial phenomenon. And, 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 but, but so what's interesting, I think, is to, to, to find echoes of these behaviours as you did yeah. uh, in the pylon culture and, 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 and find it in our general behaviour as a whole. And, and, and it's actually something I've thought a lot about as we move a lot of our social relationships online. Where we're actually, by breaking the nexus of geography and relationships increasingly, mm. you, you can, and we, we know there's this phenomenon of people presenting their best possible self to the world. Instagram world. Right. Right, where you're constantly right. just, here's your best look right now. So we don't have these social pressures so much to effectively police and patrol and constrain the excesses of our behaviour. None of us kind of live to speak to the point of truth. In, in this truthful world, well, the more we live online, the more we live in this kind of artificial world where a lot of the mechanisms which, which we developed over very long periods of time to manage behaviour and interaction, they just don't work anymore. So they don't have their natural, um, their natural resistance. So your, your ability to construct a complete fantasy of who you are, who I am, 
that would meet a lot of resistance because everyone else in the community would be telling you well, who you are. But they also and your see place. you. They they actually see the bits around your yeah. public performance, even if it's you're at home and, and and you appear to be the the nicest man in the world out and about. But they hear you screaming at your children and your wife. They see the bruises. You know, like to, to take an extreme example, yeah. right? But whereas when we can construct these kind of artificial, and then the other part is that you can avoid the consequences of falling out with your neighbours if they're all online because you simply, you know, you can sever these pretty tenuous ties, you can block them, the tools are there, and then move that relationship somewhere else without being publicly obvious. Whereas if you live in a village or a town or somewhere where everyone knows each other and you turn out, it's very quickly apparent that these people are not talking anymore and people start wondering why. Whereas that's not at all apparent. Like to go and find out whether someone's blocked someone else or whatever, it's far less apparent. So I find it's a very interesting kind of way we when we shift online our relationships all these things we developed over very long periods of time don't work anymore before the break let me just tell you a little story and i went to a conference in uh bushland victoria back in december and it's a small community of people who mostly connect online but everyone came together a couple hundred people for a long weekend and i was actually i and i still am having a tiff with one of my close friends who has stopped speaking to me and i'm not really clear why and i saw her there And it was this very weird moment where I wanted to sort of force the issue and she wasn't having any. And it would have been exactly like village life if we were having a tiff in village life. It was that same kind of, okay, we're just going to be polite in public. But because we were always able to get away with not connecting online, it was never really apparent. But seriously, in this fronting situation it was uncomfortable for the entire weekend and if we had just lived in a village it was untenable in the long term you would have to resolve this you'd have to resolve it somehow yeah and i think that's very true so i think that's one of the interesting facets of this movement of our social lives online we lose a lot of the pressures to keep ourselves honest about our own behaviors we don't need to clean up our own messes absolutely and we can live increasingly in a kind of fantasy world all right john hold that thought you are listening to john alsop and i talk about future and truth and lies and communities on this episode of the next billion seconds and we're back talking to john alsop about truth and how we know things are true now I want to put a cat squarely amongst the pigeons here and really connect this to something that I think a lot of people will be familiar with. I am reading Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, which is his inside view of the Trump administration right now. And there was a lot in the press about Trump being this or Trump being that. That, to me, is not the interesting part of the book because Michael Wolff has been covering the media and he's, in fact, been very close to Rupert Murdoch for a number of years. He actually understands how the media operates. And one of the points that he's making, and I think has been mostly ignored in the media about the book, was the way the media has framed Donald Trump. And I am not necessarily the biggest fan of Donald Trump, but I've now come to see, in a way, how there's been this spin because there are effectively two communities. And the community of the professional media and the professional politicians are almost like the Heathers at the high school and here comes the ugly silly kid and they're just going to find every way to make fun of that person and there's at some level even though that's an complete oversimplification of the situation you can see how both sides are cherry-picking the truth in order to frame things a certain way. And I, until I read this book, I didn't really have any clarity about this. And now I feel like I can actually read the news reports and go, what facts have they picked? And if this is the case, if we're in a world which is overrich in facts, and this is both the triumph and the curse of the web, 
right, is that we can now pretty much know everything, which means we really do have to pick our facts because otherwise we're just going to be completely overwhelmed. How in heaven's name do we come to any understanding of which facts we're picking and which facts are being picked for us? Well, <laughs> <laughs> look, I don't know. We, we can or we do. I, I guess for, for quite some time I've had this, uh, for years now, I've had this kind of f- this framing in my head of two kinds of approaches to, to, the, to the world, to the universe. There's a kind of a rhetorical approach and, and a rational approach. Right? And obviously, you know, they blur, but, the, the, you know, how do we approach the world? Do we, do we approach the world to try and understand? Like, they're kind of enlightenment tradition right. of, of the world. You know, it kind of emerged as, as a scientific method and natural philosophy emerged, that, you know, in the, the kind of 17th century. You know, we, we, we developed this thing called the scientific method, uh, and, and, and it was a way in which we used to test ideas to test the universe, to test our hypotheses about them, um, and, and ultimately to, to, to improve our understanding of the universe, right? And at the same time, we have this kind of rhetorical approach to the world, which is essentially to take pieces of evidence about the world and weave them into a story yes. to convince us. Because you know, we can really only believe stories. We can accept scientific evidence, but we can only believe stories. That's right. So there's like trillions of data points about how the you know the climate has changed over the last 50 or 100 years. You know, unspeakable numbers of them, right? But th- what makes sense is when we call it a thing like global warming. But what's interesting about that is then, of course, that gives you a rhetorical approach to say, well, it's getting colder over here. Therefore, so we, we talk about climate change and then somebody, you know, people will approach that by saying, but you used to call it warming and you just change, you know. So we're, what now we're doing is debating about the words and the narratives mm. where actually none of that is a conversation about the underlying data Fact, right. or facts. And, you know, I think these are probably speak to, you know, again, and evolutionary psychology is challenging and so on, but speaks to things that obviously, you know, humans have clearly told stories for thousands of years. There's evidence that there are, you know, there's some of the that's fairy tales that we all know pretty much all around, at least the kind of traditional kind of European world, date back perhaps 7,000 years. Right, pre-literature. Yes. Right? Oh, long pre. Um, so you know, it's clear that, and you know, like whether it's you know, epic poems and and, and the story of of Homer and the Odyssey, all of these things that were clearly pre-literate stories that eventually end up being written down. So so clearly, it's very very long-standing attraction to storytelling as, as a very powerful mechanism for kind of understanding the world, to understanding one another, um, and so the scientific method is very recent. And almost, you know, in complete odds to the idea of storytelling. Well, let me let me let me spin this even more. So Donna Haraway, who is an amazing researcher, still working, and has really looked at the history of science, and has studied this, has her PhD in this, and she said, "Look, it obviously the stories are important because they're the way we communicate what things we've learned with science. But the problem is, is that those stories do involve these rhetorical choices. So even science, as it understands itself, even science as it understands what." a discovery means is spinning a story. And so, yes, there may be some facts underlying that story, but what this means. And when a reporter asks a scientist, what does your discovery mean? They're asking for that story to be told. And the thing that Donna Haraway pointed out was that we need to be very careful and very provisional about those stories because those stories actually do change for us. The way we understand Einstein in 
say 1905 was very different from how we understood Einstein in 1945 because something about the speed of light and mass energy equivalents that he wrote in 1905 became a nuclear weapon in 1945. And so the same facts, but a different story around them. And so this is part of this, I think you really have highlighted the rhetoric and enlightenment rhetoric and science are the two sides and one of them feeds our soul the other one feeds our i guess our minds so do we reconcile these or do we just sort of accept that this is the price of admission well i, I think to the extent to which it's, it's a useful framing of, of trying to understand human behavior i think i think it's important for humans to understand themselves and our limitations and strengths and of course the bugs are also often features just depending how you look at them yeah so, you know, like, is it a bug of humans that we are attracted to beliefs? On one level, yes, because it allows us to, well, it kind of entraps us into believing things that don't have grounding in reality, which might lead us astray. And, you know, as a consequence, you know, like the, the challenges of religion and belief beliefs in things that, that for which there's very little evidence, you know, has had hugely negative impacts on individuals and societies and cultures over very extended periods of time. But at the same time, without religious and that collective hallucination, I think, that, that is described as in soap sapiens, right? Um, you know, without that, would we have created groups and, uh, that transcended the Dunbar number? Like, we, you know, so... Would so, we have been able to actually build a civilization right. without some of those beliefs that, that underlie this. And, now, and more importantly, the, the capacity for belief. So, so, you know, we have to, I think that self-knowledge of ourselves as individuals and then as groups and then as a species really allows us to understand why these seemingly extraordinary and bizarre things with this, you know, the rise of something like Trump or mm. so on happen, right? Because rather than simply, you know, we, we're forever attributing things to malice or, or, or you know, or, you know, like kind of like good evil and bad and whatever, yeah. like, oh, it's evil. It's like, you know, on one level, that, that that's a high level abstraction. But why yeah. does ISIS happen? What attracts someone who grows up and is well-educated, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or even the Western world, right. what attracts them to that? Like, you you know, like, I think that's a really deep and interesting question, an important question, right? And again, it's like a bug of humans that it happens, but there are, look, bugs that are just bugs, eventually systems break down because of them. But if they also convey advantages, then they, they persist over and, and, time. And a person who has a very strong set of beliefs and probably a very strong set of tribal beliefs and would defend those would probably live and raise a family and pass their genes along the next. I mean, there's the whole natural selection argument. But again, we don't want to lean too much into biology. We just want to look at that intensity and go, this is clearly a thing that we're capable of because of the stories we tell ourselves. But I want to change track a little bit. We now have this thing called the deep fakes, which is this other new thing. And this really started to sort of rise about six months ago. And it actually came out of adult entertainment or pornography, depending on how you want to call it. And it was a process by which they would basically take the faces off of the actresses who were involved in these and then put on the faces of very well-known actresses. And the technology was clumsy at the beginning, but then it got backed by a lot of artificial intelligence so that it actually improved very rapidly. And now it's not so much that you can't tell that these things are not real, but there's now an entire subculture on the Internet who are trading these videos around that show um, generally young female actresses in all sorts of very adult situations. And this is clearly part of it. And yet, I don't think anyone thinks these things 
are really real. And yet there seems to be some charge around the fact that it's real enough for people to maybe fantasy about them. I and mean, what is that? So I think there's two things. So the first thing is to observe how much this has improved in relatively short order. Six in the months, last, right. absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so you've got this, you've got this trend towards increasing reality there, I guess. Um, but, you know, I, I guess it also speaks to, you know, like people have, have found, you know, fanfic. Uh, you know, Which is where they make stories up about their favourite movie characters, although there's a, there's a famous subgenre of Spock and Kirk as... K-stroke S, K-slash-S, isn't yes, it? I think it's pronounced right. Some, something like that. Right. But, uh, but of, Which are of, kind of like homoerotic yes. stories, often written for and by women, oh, yeah. interestingly as well, to the homoerotic kind of fiction around Kirk and Spock. Yeah. And there's a lot of that also in anime as well. Right, that's so you're right, and and we we've sort of there's a whole subgenre of of altering kind of anime, even kind of more mainstream cartoons. So so I, I guess it taps into to again deep seated kind of behaviours around fantasy uh, and the blurring of of, of of fantasy and reality there. So you know if we're speaking of truth. Right. What role does fantasy play in truth seeking? And so now we have the. But it's interesting because we're seeing fantasy that's being amplified by technology, and truth that's being amplified, and lies that are being amplified. So we basically have these innate human qualities, right? And then we're throwing them into a world where everything is connected, everything is instantly available, and everything is being amplified, not just by connectivity, but by artificial intelligence, so that it gets better at what it's doing. And so now, all of a sudden, is this, I guess, a tipping point into something else, or are we just seeing so much more of it? And what happens when, God forbid, a certain tape out of Russia surfaces showing the president doing things that I don't think are appropriate to mention on a family podcast, but those of you listening will know what I'm talking about. Um, There's no way to know whether that tape is going to be real. And clearly that tape can be manufactured now. So the interesting question, I guess, is, is anyone going to care? It's a bit like the the quote that I that I referred to a few minutes ago. Are people people genuinely going to care anymore? Um, you know, are the people who think that that's you know they're 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 they're, they're not supporters of Trump? Are they you know it's going to amplify that? And they're you know, but the people who do support Trump, well, they'll find solace now in the thought that it's not true, and and it doesn't matter anyway. And then the news cycle will pass, and it will have passed into oblivion. So it just it all it ends up doing is. There's no level of truth or lie that can do anything other than amplify the worldviews of the people who are predisposed to believe or disbelieve. That's basically what we're saying. Perhaps uh, on some macro level, that would certainly be something we should be profoundly concerned about. Yeah. You know, like Trump said this extraordinary thing about 18 months ago, perhaps a little bit longer. Where he said, I could kill someone in shoot, time, shoot, shoot someone. someone in Times Square and, and that would have no impact on me. You know, like at the time, it's the extra- I mean, to me, the prescience of that observation, I mean, I, I'm actually not sure that it isn't true. Uh, the, the, you know, like, well, people uh, well, would immediately question the video footage. Well, there's that, right. So, uh, you know, like, you know, how far, how extreme do things have to take place for them to jolt people out of their worldview? And I think to, to, to veer toward very disturbing things is is the treatment of these extraordinary young people at the school in Florida Parkland Parkland and their courage and 
you know, articulate nature and, and their capacity to kind of engage in social media, to, you know, and, and like I, I feel... And to continue for- speaking truth in a way that doesn't allow it to immediately become subject to partisan debate. And is that... Is, but is- except that it, it kind of has, and more importantly, the treatment of, of, of this idea of a crisis actor where, where these kids and their parents and so on are not real, they're fake, right? Uh, and this, we've seen this emerge uh, uh, in previous appalling circumstances. So again, there's almost like a deliberate, st- well, there is a deliberate strategy, right? Which goes back probably to the PR industry. There's a fantastic, fantastic kind of seminal work around PR called Toxic Sludge is Good For You. <laughs> and it is a history of public relations going right back to the way in which um, Smoking in the early, you know, the early mid twentieth century, you know, into, into the nineteen teens and twenties, was a male right. thing, and there's a famous story of of a, you know, a PR agency constructing a sense or a, a t- tapping into to, to women's liberation so in the, you know around Edward, Edward Bernays, right, who is the nephew of Sigmund Freud. The, and so, so essentially, you know, creating this, this this whole campaign around smoking for women was an act of liberation. It was associated with you know the suffragette movement and so on. And so you know, and then you know, obviously, consequence of, of massive rise of smoking amongst women and the impact on on public health and so on. But this was literally constructed. Um, and so, these the understanding of, of psychology in the uh, you know in the public relations world has is there and has been there for a long time. And I think we're you know we're seeing that in extreme now. And maybe we've absorbed it so much. In, into the mainstream that, you know, that's how we instinctively respond to the world. So in some sense, once we start lying in the public sphere, it sets up, uh, I guess, a set of chain reactions and relationships that now that we've added, uh, because public relations was it couldn't really exist without... At Mass least, media, right? Yeah, at, le- at least newspapers and then radio to be able to amplify the reach. And of course, now we have social media, which puts pretty much everyone in the capacity of being... A message amplifier. We're now seeing the way that the bot armies that are controlled, maybe out of Russia, if you believe that story, or who knows, right? But we see the way that the bot armies are being used to amplify certain messages, certainly around Parkland. It was noted by the people, because we can now track this, that messages on both sides were being amplified, so that the most important things seem to be simply stirring the pot, not arriving at one point of view or another. So, in other words, the chaos was the design goal of these. With all of this, and, and we kind of had to sort of bring this in because we're going to be spending the entire series taking a look at different angles of this. With all of this, with you as the father of four kids, how do you tell your kids to regard the information that they are being bombarded with? How do you help them negotiate their way into some understanding of the truth? So so what, the first thing I'll observe about that is very interesting the place that Wikipedia plays in, in you know in their education and when it comes up the instinctive reaction of my particularly a couple of older daughters who are kind of now pretty internet literate you know they're kind of like 10 12 years old and they're you know starting one starting a high school and I, if I raise you know you know, they have a question. I say, let's look it up on Wikipedia. They're like, yeah, the instinct reaction is, well, Wikipedia is not a, you know, a canonical source that's been drummed into them. Yeah. However, like by any standard, it's a far better source than most of the things they're going to be exposed to. So, so to, to talk about this purely tactically, because it's certainly something kind of thing is very, you know, very much weighs on me, is it typically happens around when 
they raise an incident, you know, I try to use that as a kind of teaching moment where I can kind of, oh, how did you hear about, like my, my eight-year-old daughter sent me a text around something happened 9-11 the other day because they, you know, none of my children are really aware of 9-11, right? Because my, my oldest was only 12, right? right. And, and, you know, it's faded over time. But it came up in a conversation we were driving along recently and we, we, we have long commutes in our car and we were listening to something, a podcast or other, and, and something around it came up and so I just discussed in very kind of age-appropriate terms that day and what happened and how the world kind of changed in some ways and so on. And so now that's in their mind and my daughter sort of told me the story about there was a father and, you know, he, he was going to work in the you know, World, you know, World Tower and then his daughter was 16 but she needed to lift to school and he was really cranky but he gave her a lift but then he got to work and he missed the, you know, clearly a kind of folk story, yeah. an yeah. interesting folk story, one we've heard. And and for me now, that's an opportunity to talk to my daughter. Well, how did you know about that? Where did you hear about it? Oh, I saw mm. it on this YouTube video, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and well, okay, well, how do you know if that you, you know, it's, so for me, it's more about getting the start thinking yeah. about, you know, because at the, that sort of age, you it's know, kids Socratic, still live in, you know, the, the Easter bunny, right? Yeah. It's the Socratic method with your kids though, right? It's right. how did you come to believe this? How did you come to understand this? What is your process around that? And if they can become conscious of that process, then they have at least the first level of, of cognitive tool that they'll need to be able to find their way into understanding what truth is. John, once again, thank you for coming and helping to sort of illuminate some of the fog of fact and lie and truth and fiction and hope and fear and fantasy and reality. And we'll have you back soon on the next billion seconds. Thanks, Mark. I look forward to it. You've heard John and I mention a lot of articles and links to things that we have seen that cover a lot of this ground. We'll be posting all of that to the website. So check that out at nextbillionseconds.com. Did our conversation have the ring of truth? If so, we would like to hear from you. Drop by our LinkedIn page. Send us a message on Twitter. Tell us what you want to know about the future. Tell us what you think is true about the future. And we'll do our best to bring it to you on a new episode. In the next episode of the second series, we will be speaking to energy futurist Ramez Nam about how we'll be keeping the lights on over the next billion seconds and how much has already changed about the way we generate energy. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogrammed by Dee Hawala. Our audio play was recorded with Alex Mitchell, Jamie Cho, Live Proud, John Elsop, and myself. Music by Kurt Goffrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.